Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing, with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is where we talk about growing our life story business. Clients come to us because they want to record their stories and memories to share with their family and friends and with future generations, and they need our help to write that book or make that audio or video. And today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Karen Jones. Karen is the editor and a columnist for the UK's Erotic Review magazine, where she writes about all things sex and relationships. She's also had work published in the New York Times, Huff Post, the Times of London, and the Sydney Daily Telegraph. She practiced medicine as a physician assistant in Seattle before moving to the UK for four years, and now she's back in the US. She's spent the past five years dating and interviewing men about their feelings around intimacy, desire, and deceit. And she's now working on a memoir about these conversations and her tumultuous experience with menopause, during which she had a resurgence in her interest in sex and how it affects our health and well-being. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hi, thank you. You know that this show is for people who help clients gather their life stories and record them. And presumably, all of our life story clients have had a sex life or maybe even Mm -hmm. still do. (laughs) Should we be making that a part of our conversations when we're sitting down for interviews with our clients? And, And if we should, then why? Well, uh, my opinion might be a little bit biased, but I just think that our sexual lives and our intimate lives are very much a part of our lives, and they definitely have a huge impact on how we we see the world, view the world, conduct ourselves within the world. So I think to leave that part out of one's story is probably um, a little tragedy. Um, but it's a de- it's a delicate conversation to have um, with someone, especially someone who might be of a generation uh, a few older than we are, or you know, expect their families to read this kind of history. So, you know, I think what I would um, offer here is just ways that we could talk to people in a gentle, you know, non kind of confrontational way about talking about their sex lives. <laughs> Right. Well, and when we say sex lives, I mean, with that comes intimacy. And, um, you know, it's, it's a it's such a huge topic, because there can be very good parts of that, right? That's how babies come about. Mm-hmm. And presumably, that's going to be one of the joyous things that they're the joyful things that they're going to be talking about. Um, it can be a, a big love story that they've had with their partner or um, with mm-hmm. one of their partners. Um, mm-hmm. But it can also have some negative connotations for some people. Infidelity, because infidelity has been part of mm-hmm. married life mm-hmm. since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Um, but there can also be things like sexual trauma. So mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot that can be involved in there. And as a as a personal historian, when you're walking into that conversation, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how does how does somebody deal with that? I mean, you've and I know that you're not a, a personal historian, but you've had a lot of intimate conversation. Let me rephrase that. You've had a lot of conversations about intimacy with people, mm-hmm. and um, and I I know 
you know, the other really big topic that we sometimes uh, steer away from is talking about death. And what I found when, um, when I do approach that topic of death with clients who are mostly elderly, uh, they, they receive that with a sense of relief because their, their children are not asking them, Hey mom or Hey dad, what do you feel about death? Are you afraid? Are you, you know, do you, do you believe in an afterlife? And so when they have the opportunity to talk about it, they can be really relieved. And I'm wondering if maybe the same is true about talking about sex and intimacy. Oh, I absolutely believe it's true. And I feel like the, the questions that I've become brave enough to ask people about their intimate lives has been met have been met with with real openness and a sense of wow you know not very many people will talk about this or you know you're very open about this this is this is really refreshing so i've never really been shut down um around the questions that i that i start asking people i i think they're definitely receptive um and you know i think you know, like you said about death, I think people do want to talk about this. They just don't know where to start. And, you know, I think one of the easiest ways to start is to ask people about, you know, their first crush uh, mm. and, you know, go way back and how that affected their life and their burgeoning sense of sexuality. And, you know, it's it might be hard for some interviewers to even say the word sex. You know, there are all sorts of ways you could you could put it, you know, your burgeoning sense of of your maturity or your pu- puberty or or, you know, what was it like to have your first kiss? You know, what kind of things were happening to you and how did you start seeing um the people you were attracted to, how did that affect your life? Um, and then, yeah, just the stories of falling in love and getting married. And But um, one of the great quotes I, I heard recently, I read recently with Gabriel Garcia Marquez is dead now, unfortunately, but he's one of the most wonderful writers ever. And he, I agree. <laughs> he writes, you know, beautiful stories about the complexities of families. I mean, I think anybody who is a family biographer um, would benefit from reading 100 Years of Solitude or Love in the Time of Cholera. But one of the quotes I came across recently of his is, uh, we have a public life, we have a private life, and we have a secret life. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that could really add to the story of our lives is to actually talk about our secret lives. Mm. I like that a lot. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I've mentioned this multiple times with, with other um, guests on the podcast is when I sit down with a new client, in general, the first interview and maybe the first two interviews is sort of the honeymoon phase where they're telling the stories that they've told often before. Mm. And they're the fun stories to tell. They're the comfortable stories to tell. They're the happy stories to tell. Mm. And then inevitably you get to a point where it drops down a level and they're, they're reaching for stories that maybe they haven't told as often, or maybe they haven't processed as well. And I would guess that that realm of the secret self is going to be maybe a little bit more uh, difficult to access, but probably a really rich vein of stories and of Mm -hmm. Um, Mm self-illumination. And then you have to ask yourself, well, how do we help somebody get there? Uh, Especially if it's people who have grown up not necessarily in a in an era um, that valued Mm self-reflection and looking inward. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think you'd be surprised at what people, even older people, are willing to talk about once that door is opened for them. Because it's a door that usually needs to be opened by somebody else for them mm. to become more open to talking about it. You know, I've I've been interviewing people on a more formal basis, um, not people that I've been dating, but people that I've been interviewing about desire and love and things like that. And what I always reassure them before I start the interview is that, look, um, you don't have to answer any of my questions. I want to ask them because I want you to have the opportunity to answer them. But I'm also never going to write anything down or publish anything or, or give you a copy of something that has anything in it that you don't want to be in it. You know, I have to assume that's part of the editing process when you're working with clients is that, you know, let's just get it all out there. You know, let's just ask all sorts of questions and have everything down and then decide, pick and choose from what you want that will um, create the story that they want to see and that they want to right. share. That's um, great advice. That's great advice. And, and everybody, um, you know, all of my clients know that they're the final editor. And if something they don't want something in, then we strike it out. Um, in general, I put everything into the draft that we've spoken about. And then they can see whether they, uh, you know, whether it's going to cause them some kind of alarm, or mm -hmm. if it's going, if they think it's going to bother somebody else. But that's really good advice to really like gathering everything together, and then seeing what you have. Because even if they don't want to have intimate details in their story, that might just rehashing those details might lead them into some insights that they wouldn't have had had they not, like you said, had somebody not opened that door for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, one of the, I had the funny story where a, f a friend of my mother's um, told me one day about, uh, having eloped with someone when she was 18. And, you know, I was just so taken aback because we make assumptions um, <laughs> of people's lives based on what we've experienced of them. And, you know, to me, she was this person that had a very conventional life as like my parents did. And, you know, I, it wouldn't have even occurred to me that she was sexual with anyone before um, her husband um, which is how we view our parents a lot. And, and yet I think that, you know, even, you know, anybody of any generation has those kind of experiences that people don't assume that they would have ever had, um, which are amazing experiences. And I think that they're worth telling. Um, you know, the question is, will very many people want, w will those things hurt the people that are reading their story. You know, that's what I think the biggest sticking issue would be is that a lot of times our secret lives are secret because we withhold that information for fear of hurting our loved ones. Just over the past few years, uh, my thinking has really shifted a lot on how we in general, we humans see the older generation. And by older generation, I, I basically mean our parents and our grandparents. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, for whatever reason, we, we keep ourselves in a very comfortable box and we do not like to see beyond uh, we don't like to see them as people beyond their roles as mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, and maybe even the aunts and uncles, although it's probably a little looser with that. Mm. And I think that is an injustice that we're doing 
mm-hmm. to the older people because then when people sit down and tell stories, they're so the you know they're telling their own story, but they're of course talking about their parents and their grandparents. Um, and if they are committing that to paper and uh, making that a part of their narrative, but they're refusing to see their parents in any kind of um, fuller way, mm-hmm. then I just feel so sad for those those parents who are probably deceased now and you know and and they're being pigeonholed into this really little probably not very interesting role mm-hmm. when their life like you said uh, you know your mother's friend had she had eloped and she had this other life that you know that you were blind mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. um and had she not told that your conception of her would have been um much narrower mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. I think that we do that on purpose because I think it makes us feel more comfortable if we don't have to recognize that our parents were people and they had <laughs> They're you know, sexual beings. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. I mean, big lives in in, you know, their their stage was just as big as our stage, the, you know, the right. the stage that they played their life out on and sexuality is obviously a part of that. Well, and you know, so, I think that um, you know, a lot of people the older you get, the less you care about what other people think. And the less you have to lose, you know, I kind of feel like it's a perfect time to talk about the secret world, the secret life that you've had, or even if it's not a secret, just to start talking about how you felt about, um, you know, the long romance you had with your wife or, you know, the relationship that you had with an old flame that never went away. You know, I think Mm -hmm. that the older we get, the more you know, experiences we have with different people. And it's really easy to just just to say that those don't matter. But I think they do. I think they matter to our narrative. I mean, there have been several men in my life now that have changed me. Uh, and that will never change. You know, every relationship I'll have f- going forward will not be compared to them, but be influenced by the experience I've had with other people. And I have to assume that that happens for most of us. I I think we have, we all want to have this very sterile view of married love that, you know, once you get married and if the marriage lasts and it's a success, then there was nothing that came before it and there were no um, no trying parts to it. But like you said, you know, what about the crushes that never quite died off altogether or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pining for somebody that maybe went sub subterranean, but it never died out completely. Well, and, and, you know, it doesn't even have to be about, you know, that other person either. You know, I think one thing that's really interesting is our attitudes these days about marriage and sex and long-term relationships and, and just asking the question to older generations about, you know, what was their, what was their concept of why their relationships lasted as long as they did? And what were they willing to sacrifice? And what did they... These are such good questions. I need to be writing them. <laughs> She's saying them for my next interviews. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, I think our expectations, you know, I'm 53. And I think that my expectations of what a long-term relationship are these days is very different from my mother's. And, you know, a lot of people... Uh, of my mother's generation, they married people that lived in their neighborhood. I mean, that was very common. And now there's this sense, you know, you can set your OK Cupid profile to to show up on anybody's 
feed anywhere in the world. You know, now the idea that you would marry the girl next door is just kind of shocking. But, um, you know, what did that mean to people back then? And, and was it for them a satisfying life? You know, there's, they talk about the difference between a good life and a happy life. And I think mm. a happy life is, is, it's kind of, it's like light, light, life light. It's kind of just this accumulation of, of, you know, joyous experiences. But I think a good life is one in which you, you go through a lot of difficulties and you go through those difficulties with somebody and getting through them, you know, say for instance, infidelity, um, is, is an achievement. And what do people who've gone through that, what, what's their message to us? Um, you know, I've recently, I wrote a piece about infidelity based on something that Esther Perel said. Esther Perel has, has written a couple of amazing books. Oh, she's incredible. I, yes, yeah. I, I even have a couple of quotes that I wrote down for this interview with you. Okay. Esther Perel. <laughs> but she said recently, you know, infidelity these days is the get out of marriage free card. You know, it used to be more mm-hmm. shameful to be divorced than to, um, than to stay. Um, and now it's more shameful to stay if you've been cheated on than to divorce. So why is that? You know, is, is it just because we, we want these carefree, happy lives? Or is a good life one where we actually, you know, work through it a little bit more? And I'm not saying we stay together. Um, and this is kind of veering off the whole topic of interviewing people. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, like, I'm, I have to assume that even people are gen- uh, our parents' generations who are being interviewed for life stories have been through divorce. Um, and I'd be curious to know what their concept of why they didn't want to stay in that marriage was. And, you know, that's also a good time to reckon for one's children or one's family, the reasons why they couldn't stay, you know, that may, you, we, we may never have heard how that person was suffering in their marriage. Mm. And that's a difficult, it's a very difficult conversation, but in order, but for someone to be asked, how did you suffer? What made you want to leave? It's just opening a whole bunch of, of amazing, you know, avenues for self, self-exploration. And I think the same question can be applied to all of the marriages, all of the people who had an intact marriage all the way through. Mm. You know, how how did you suffer in this marriage? And, you know, what were some of the hard parts? Where did your intimacy break down? And did it ever recover? And how did it recover? And why did you decide to stay? Because I'm sure there's an awful lot of people who stayed for reasons that, um, the current generation would not see as valid, right? And so, if you're if you are a younger generation reading about the older generation, what a um, a treasure that would be for you if you're going through marital problems or if or, or you know any kind of relationship problems, and you're able to weigh the values that you've grown up with and that you see in the culture now against the values that somebody else held, and it you know it could. Because none of this is black and white, yeah, right? Absolutely. Well, why don't you 
tell us a little bit about uh, the book that you're writing. I think you had mentioned before that you're writing a memoir. Uh-huh. And is it based on, is, is the theme based on sexuality and intimacy? Or, or mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So um, I, when I was living in London, I was there between 2013 and 2017. Um, I left my marriage uh, because it, it had been on on rocky ground for a long time, and then you know you you can't leave your problems behind; they follow you. And <laughs> so there was a bit of a reckoning once I was unemployed and I had more time on my hand, and I could really. And then you know menopause hit, and that's always a clarifying time. And I would encourage. I would. In- <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure that every woman would say it's a clarifying. Oh, maybe, maybe muddy and then clarifying. Okay. Well, yes. There's all sorts of of stuff to get through, but I do believe that that is a very important question for a life interviewer to ask a woman: is tell me about your experience of menopause. Oh, Karen, you are a genius. I have never once thought of that. And oh, really? And, you know what? No, I, I, shame <laughs> on me. I've never thought of that. And you know, the funny thing is, um, my my mom had um, a pretty. I, I was just talking to one of my kids about my mom, and she had she developed some weird phobias when she was in menopause. Um, the one that stands out is she couldn't drive across bridges. Now I know some people have this as a lifetime phobia, but that was just during menopause. And she also couldn't go into any kind of store unless there was a cart that she could hold on to. So basically mm. nothing besides grocery stores. And we were just talking about this and that was, um, you know, it had a pretty big impact on my life, it had a huge impact on her life. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and shame on me for never thinking to ha- never having thought to ask that of any of my storytellers. So, oh, my gosh. Oh, I, I think you would get a bonanza of, of great yeah. stories based on that, because especially older generations, they didn't talk about it. I mean, we're talking about it all the time now. We can't shut up about menopause. And, you know, women in their 50s, it's, you know, it, it's, it's something that women want to talk about now because they want they not only do they want the support and feeling like other people know how crazy you can feel when you're going through that um but i don't think they want to feel like it's a stigma anymore right and exactly. and i don't think men have a clue they don't have a clue what it's like and 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 we're thinking you know talking about the older generation those are the people who weren't even allowed to say the word pregnant you know if right. you, go far, you know probably two generations back you know you were <laughs> Ooh, that implies you had sex <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay so let's get back to what you were saying you you were you were telling us a little bit about your life you were in the UK and you were going through medical yeah so it, it was well you know it was very tumultuous for me because instead of of um, experiencing a waning desire in sex, I had uh, what's very atypical, which is an incredible surge in my libido at the same time that I was breaking up with my husband. And, mm-hmm. and for me, I felt as though I was turning into a man. I felt so incredibly <laughs> fearless and, um, and really horny for one thing, and was introduced to the world of Tinder and online dating. And I was living in, you know, the metropolitan area of London, so 10 million people. So I just decided that I was going to have an adventure. Um, and, and what I found besides, you know, having a lot of fun and, you know, and, and the nice thing about dating when you don't, when you 
are not looking for love is that it's easy. You know, you don't, you don't have any big expectations and you go out with all sorts of different people that you would never bring home to your family. And, you know, so the book is about just kind of opening myself up to the influence of all sorts of different kinds of men and different kinds of relationships. And what I felt that I learned not only about myself and what I wanted for my future, but I think I learned a lot about how men feel. And because I was feeling fearless and quite masculine in my sexuality at that time, um, I engaged in a lot of really confrontational uh, conversations with them. You know, especially, you know, this is no secret, the ones that were married. I was, I, I published an essay in the New York Times on in Modern Love about uh, what I learned, or what I learned about infidelity by sleeping with married men. And uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid to, to challenge them. And I wasn't trying to make them feel guilty, but I just really wanted to understand why they were seeking relationships outside their marriage. And, you know, for a lot of them, it was because marriage had become a sexual wasteland. Um, mm. And so I think, Many of us, not just men, many of us um, struggle with a sexual mismatch, especially after being with someone in a domestic situation. And Esther Perel talks a lot, a lot about that in her book, um, Mating in Captivity, um, about the inevitable uh, shifts and desire that happen within um, an otherwise stable long-term relationship. Yeah, she doesn't she kind of frame it as... Um uh, sort of a tension between intimacy and knowing the other person. We have to remain curious about the other person because there has to be a bit of distance. Yes, if we're if you know we have we have this sort of rosy picture in our minds of what a good relationship looks like, and you're you know mm-hmm. you're, you know the other person through and through. But I think what she's saying is. No, we have to have, well, kind of going back to what you were talking about, we have to have that secret self. Mm, We mm -hmm. can't be known entirely to the other person and we don't want to be because there has to be that distance. Mm -hmm. There has to be that room to... um, To see each other as autonomous beings that have outside interests. I mean, where you're willing to go with your secret life is totally up to you, right? So, you know, for one person, that means that they have a lover, you know, say, for instance, in France, it was very much the understood that you were married to one person, and you had a lover outside of that. And that was not a big deal. You know, in America, and I have to assume that most of your story writers are working within this country. um, You know, we have very different views about infidelity. And, you know, after my piece was run in the New York Times, I had, you know, a lot of people who just saw this as a very black and white issue. And how could I? And, you know, don't you know, he's lying to you too, if he's lying to his wife, da, 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 da. And, you know, I I had no skin in the game. I mean, you know, some women were very angry at me because they think that was a betrayal of the sisterhood. Um, you know, I'm not taking either side. I'm not saying it's the woman's fault. I'm not saying it's the man's fault. I'm saying that it is what it is. It happens. You know, let's just talk about why it's happening. Where is this disconnect? What can we learn from each other? How can we better um, take care of our needs and better understand the needs of the person that we live with? And and Perel will say that you need you need to have your own things going on. 
you know, if they're only just like bowling with your girlfriends, you know, just, you know, I think a, a lot of people are doing it better these days where they do have their autonomous lives outside their, their marriages. Um, but yeah, if you get too fused, if you get too fused within this couple bubble, is how somebody put it to me once, um, you know, where is the desire? There is no desire. Right. The, de- you, the des- desire happens when something is, is either forbidden which you know is t- you know that goes into the infidelity realm or is you know you want to be curious about it you know what is that person that i love doing that makes them so interesting you know that makes them you know not who i am and not who we are together but who she is or who he is you know that keeps things interesting i wonder if there is an element of um the double standard being equalized now. So like you said, there's always been infidelity. But if you think back to like 50, 60 years ago, um, when the women were in general, not in the workplace nearly as much. So they were at home. Um, they were Their lives were probably much more confined than the typical man's life. And maybe now that we're all out in the world much more, and we all have the you know, it's much more equal opportunity for going astray in your marriage, mm-hmm. you know, consciously or unconsciously, you know, if you're pursuing or, or you fall into some sort of affair. And I wonder if now that has changed the conversation or changed the way that people look at it. And maybe it's become more of a threat, because I am sure there was probably an awful lot of women who knew that their husbands were stepping out on them, um, mm-hmm. but they didn't have any recourse. You know, they they were home with the kids and they didn't have an income. And now the playing field has leveled out. Um, and so I would guess that there's more danger, especially if you're a man now, um, because the, it is easier for women to not only have affairs, but actually to leave mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the marriage. Yeah, yeah. And the statistics support that these days, too. I, and um, almost as many women are having affairs. And, you know, what they say is that women are less likely to admit to it. So it's possible that we're all having as many affairs or, you know, women are having as many affairs as men. But um, you, you know, what... <laughs> You know, what I still think is the most interesting thing to talk to someone about is, you know, what triggers that in you? Why do you feel like you want to do that? So talk about that. You said that you were having these confrontational um, conversations with with the men. Did you were you surprised by anything? Did did any new things come to light? Well, you? you know what? So the men that I had affairs with and they weren't long, they were very, you know, very casual, very kind of just occasional. They, there were no love affairs that I had, but um, the men that I engaged with were all men who, like a couple of them had disabled wives. And I said to them, well, well why on earth can't you just be honest with, you know, I love you. You know, I totally care about you. I'm not going to leave you. I love our family, but can I just have, you know, occasional you know, fling outside of this, you know, why would someone say no to that? I mean, maybe that's because I was too pragmatic, but. Um, well, and so none of the men were honest with their wives. It always was a secret. So thing. the way they felt about it was it's kinder to stay silent than to bring it up. That was, oh, it, was totally it was, it was, it was kindness in their, in their minds, which, 
really kind of floored me. But then not again. You know, Graham Greene said kindness in lives are kind are oh shoot, I just lost the quote, but um he basically said the same thing. You know, it's it's better to be to lie than to be and to be kind than it is to tell the truth. Um, and you know, all, a lot of us do that. A lot of us say we don't speak our truth in order to become across as kind, you know, and even someone says, oh, what do you think true. of this dress? And you think it's hideous, but you're not going to say that because you don't want to hurt their feelings. I mean, these men really adored their wives. They were desperate to have sex with them. Um, but they weren't getting that and they didn't want to rock the boat and they didn't feel like mm. the affairs were a threat to their marriage. I mean, of course, lots of people have affairs that are threats to their marriage because they become emotional and that, and I think that's the danger of having an affair that you think will stay casual is that the more you have sex with someone, the more emotionally attached you get to them. And then you start questioning your marriage. So, um, you know, everybody does it for a different reason. But one of the men that I was seeing finally did go to his wife who suffered from MS and she was absolutely not interested in sex anymore and, and couldn't have it. She was actually physically uncomfortable with sex. And he went to her and she was incredibly generous with her um, response and she gave it some time to think about and he really was the sweetest man I mean he uh, s stayed home with the kid he actually did the homeschooling while she continued to work the job that she loved and um, and then he worked weekends and and she said yes okay I just don't want to know about it and mm -hmm. for him it was a huge relief it was just this kind of the crumbling away of this guilt he was feeling. Um, and he said things have never been better between them. Oh. So it, it's different for everyone, but there are, there, what I found from the people that did write to me after the infidelity piece came out was, look, I finally got, I could finally conf could confess that I was even having these fantasies and it opened up a whole new avenue for us together. So, you know, I think that, you know, this kind of circles back to the whole um, life history project is if someone opens that door for you, it's really a lot easier to walk in than trying to open it yourself. Mm. Unless you're the one that can I take agree. that, yeah. you know, take that leap. I, to be honest, I mean, from my own experience with working with storytellers, I've had a couple of them who have, um, it, they've they've broached the subject themselves mm -hmm. <laughs> and had some really, some sweet and some fairly racy stories oh, come out of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I do want to encourage like any of the listeners who are thinking, well, I, you know, I'm not going to ever be able to write any of this in a book. Like we, we all need to keep in mind how many stories were told where the storyteller just wants to tell their story. And they've, I mean, it happens with almost every single person that I've worked with mm. there where they say, I don't want this in the book, but, but. <laughs> and then they launch into a story and it could be an hour long story, but they, you know, it's that, it goes back to that need to tell our stories and, and need to be heard. And mm -hmm. being heard is not the exact same thing as um, needing to pass down the stories and have them, you know, have them written down or, or, mm -hmm 
on audio or video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are actually two different things. Most of the stories, yes, they're going to want them to be recorded. But some, you know, there's a there's a wider array of things that people want to talk about just because they feel that compulsion, especially if they get a little bit older and it's something, you know, it could be something from earlier in their life and, and it's a way of processing it. And, you know, I, yes. I, well, and you know. No, no, I can't wait to like go have my next interview because you know what I'm asking about. Well, and and to and to go back to that, that's a really interesting point. And I think that that alone is a reason for an interviewer to ask these kind of questions to say, look, you know, you don't have to, we don't have to put this in the book, but, you know, one of the things that I'm learning of in my own kind of, I'm my own going to therapy uh, practice is that when there are things that you want to talk about, there are not that many people that you can feel safe talking about mm-hmm. those issues with. So, you know, for instance, my issues with my parents, you know, I want to talk to my parents about that, but I don't feel safe doing it because then they are feeling defensive and things like that. If a story if a story interviewer is asking somebody that question, they are a very safe person to talk to. And that is huge. There are not that very many people that we can go to and tell our stories to where we don't feel judged and we don't feel like there's, there's going to be repercussions. And, yeah, that's a good and if point. an interviewer yeah. can say, you are safe with me telling your story and it doesn't need to be in the book, but it could be a very, you know, revelatory experience for you to be able to talk about these things that you've experienced, you know, and that could be trauma too. Um, and, right, you know, it, right. I, I don't expect your, your interviewers to be, you know, quasi therapists, but just being sitting in that space with someone and allowing them to speak is huge. Right. And that's exactly what happens when people do bring up things that were traumatic or um, really hard Mm -hmm. things that they lived through. And I I think maybe that is probably one of the fears that I've had or one of one of the reasons that I've hesitated about asking about, you know, sex life and intimacy is because if there is something that has happened that's traumatic, um, I'm not a therapist. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Um, and how do I deal with that? Now, I've I've dealt with so many people that have brought up things, you know, where they cry, where um, you you have to learn as a person of historians how to um, how to steer it away from becoming a therapy session, but also allowing the people to talk about the things that they need to talk about. And it, and it can be a balancing act. So I think maybe my fear is, you know, well, what if there's something really huge like sexual trauma and I, and I, you know, I don't know how to yeah, deal with it. Yeah. What do you say? And, you know, like, okay, right, now you need to go right. deal with this. <laughs> I mean, that's, right. <laughs> that's not your place, but it's really, it would be really right. hard. Yeah. And it's, and it probably though is like any other kind of traumatic experience where, the way I envision my role in that is I am the place that they come back to after they've ridden that 
that, you know, that big wave of emotion Mm -hmm. that I am the still place that they can come back to. Mm -hmm. So it's just being there for them, but not trying to talk them through anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I guess it wouldn't be any different probably if it, if it had to do with some sort of sexual trauma and, and, you know, like we were saying before, there's so much, so many good things that are attached to mm-hmm, sex life mm-hmm. and intimacy too. And, you know, you, you can't, you can't just look away and say, Oh, no, yeah, that's, we're not that's going there. You're talking about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. one of my friends that was reading um, an early draft of my book was, was she's like, okay, these are all interesting stories, but how did you feel? Like, I don't get a sense of how you felt about it. So, you know, for me, yeah, that's something I want to know. And as an interviewer, you know, that's, that's the stickiness that you wade into is like, Oh, that's a great story. But now tell me how you, how did you feel about that? You know? <laughs> okay, I think you need to, you need to join this profession, because that's, that's exactly what that's exactly what we do. And what I have found, and I've said this before in the podcast, I'm sure, you know, especially for women, how did that make you feel? Yeah. For men, that might be a little bit um, scary, that question. So it's, so what did you learn from mm-hmm. that? What did you take away from mm-hmm. that? You know, which is basically asking the same yeah. thing, but just in a little um, gentler way, yeah, I guess. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. So I'm thinking, I'm sitting here listening. I've never met you in person, but I'm listening to your voice and you have such a kind, kind voice. Um, And and I'm thinking when you are having these conversations with people, I would imagine that you have a a safe sort of aura around you. Um, But you were saying that you were confronting people about pretty pretty big questions. How did you allow them or how did they feel safe enough to open up to you? Well, I think one of the benefits of, of dating so many people in this short period of time was I, I met some people that taught me a lot about um, kind of unconditional regard and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And so... What do you mean by unconditional regard? Well, um, someone who is not going to jump on you with any kind of judgment that just, and you were that for that. They will, they were first that for me. And so oh. the, the way that I felt like I became a, a kinder person was by dating kind men. Um, and I know that it's, you know, it's not always easy to find that. <laughs> and a lot of women are kind of jaded about finding good men, but you know, I, know that they're out there. I've met a lot of them. Uh, And then, you know, kind of just recognizing what didn't work in my marriage, which is I didn't feel listened to. And I didn't feel like um, I was given the benefit of the doubt. And so through meeting people that were kinder than I was, and they were that were treating me kinder than I had been treated. I think that's just how I learned um, and it, it was just, it was a learning process. I mean, when people weren't kind to me, it was a real struggle to be kind back. But, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the best things that one of the men I dated ever said to me was people open up to you when they trust you not to act poorly. And I think that that just goes for everyday life. You know, I look at sometimes when I lose my temper with my son and I'm just like, all right, well, I blew that one. He's not going to open up to me now. <laughs> I, I had one of those episodes this morning with my daughter. I know all about that. Yeah. And, you know, it was just such a truism for 
any kind of interaction. You know, when people lose their cool, you just shut down. You don't, you know, and when I say, when I say the word com- conf- confrontational or confronted them, you know, I said it in a way that I hoped wouldn't make them feel bad. My, my conversations were, well, but what if you asked her this? You know, what do you think it would be like for you or for her? Um, I, I, I'm assuming that you had, that you talked with your female friends about a lot of these things mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. did you see, since you had sound, what sounds like a lot more conversations about intimacy and sex with, with men than probably most of us are willing to have, did you see a difference in the way that men think in general? I, I mean, you, you already alluded to the fact that some of them thought that it was much kinder to to have an affair, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um, uh, but not, you know, to keep it a secret where I, I think most women would disagree with that. Um, I know, I know that that wouldn't be how I would want it to be presented to me if I were in a relationship with somebody, mm-hmm, but were there other mm-hmm. things that, that seemed to be sort of a difference in like, you know, the, the whole man versus woman way of viewing things? Well, yeah, in general, that's one of the things that I'm still struggling with in the book is, is how do I, I don't want to say necessarily defend men, but how do I um, convey what they express to me in how they're different without me sounding like a jerk, you know, and, um, you know, and still being very much a woman and still being very much, um, you know, concerned about the way women are, are treated and perceived, you know, honestly, it's, I, you know, I've never had sexual trauma. I've, you know, generally had a pretty good life. Um, but, and so, but, you know, I married someone who was really difficult for me and, and we struggled a lot and, and I don't see it as his fault. I see it as our dynamic. And so, mm when um the the men that what things that i've heard from men and i've also i also conducted a survey a, a, a survey monkey survey through my column which is men tell me you know what do you think women need to know about you and intimacy what do you value most about um your long-term relationship what do women need to understand about you know how you feel about sex and I got a lot of amazing answers that way because it was anonymous. They didn't have to um, tell me who they were. And men, and, and this is an old trope too, like men feel like they can get closer to women through sex. And a lot of women feel like they can't cl- get close to a man unless they feel like he's not just looking for sex. So, you know, <laughs> it's kind of this really difficult issue and one of the married guys i was talking to we were just talking on the phone once and he was complaining about how his wife wouldn't have sex with him that week and i said well did you make her feel special this week (laughs) and he's like um i don't know maybe and he's like well like i wanted to have sex with her isn't that yeah (laughs) and i said well and, you know, I said, do you, do you ever make her feel special? And he's like, well, sometimes. And I'm like, well, she sometimes has sex with you. It's, you know, it works both ways. But I think men are just a little bit, one guy told me we're all on the spectrum. What you got to understand is we're on the spectrum. Like we really don't get it. What you 
want us to get. And <laughs> I'm taking this pretty brilliant course online now about um, understanding men. And it is, it's really interesting the way things, we process things differently and we receive information differently. And, you know, what I found because I was having sex with these men is that there's time afterwards to talk. And that's when I just let it out. And I think that, you know, there's this notion that men just want to sleep after sex, but yeah, not really. I mean, doesn't have to be the case. And you can also make conversation part of the lead up to sex. You're just kind of laying around with each other and getting a sexy night on in front of the fire with a glass of wine, whatever. And you've got his full attention. He's got your full attention. I mean, those are opportunities. Um, whereas we seem to miss them a lot during the day because we process information in our environment very differently. You know, there's just interesting um, uh, fact almost that men have different, they have 25% more neurons in a certain part of their brain, which are responsible for scanning the environment. And they can't find the butter. There's no way they can find the butter because the butter's not moving. Okay. <laughs> men scan the thing, the environment for moving things, you know, when they're oh when, my, <laughs> just like creatures in the wild. Absolutely. Wow. And women, they, um, they see it all, they take it all in and they can see everything that's going on. But a man, you know, he's a different creature. And it just, it's just these subtle things that would, if we take the time to really try to figure out how the other person is experiencing things, that's when we're going to have good conversations. Yeah. <sighs> so much to think about here. <laughs> and, and hopefully that's that are re brilliant. relevant to your audience. I don't know. I mean. Oh, gosh. Uh, yes. Well, I think we probably got a little, uh, you know, went a little astray, but that's uh, that, uh, that's fun. <laughs> yes, that's the fun part of doing fun. these interviews sometimes. <laughs> um, I definitely want to hear when your memoir gets published. But in the meantime, where can listeners go to find out more about your writing and more about you and and the the basically the research that you're doing? Yeah, so I write um, a bi monthly column called Savvy Love, and it's published in the erotic uh, review and that's the erotic review magazine.com um and then i also uh, put that out on my twitter feed which is at ms the ms karen k-a-r-i-n jones um and that's the place right now um and i don't have a publisher yet for the memoir but my agent and i are working on it so well, good luck with that. that. That book definitely needs to well, be. That's what, that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll see what the publishers think. But well, thank you very much for coming on, and good luck going forward. Definitely good luck with the book. And um, well, this yeah, has been. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. On. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening. And if you want to see links to everything that we talked about in today's show, head over to lifestorycoach.com and look for episode 69. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.